This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, visit LibriVox.org. Recorded by Kirsten Ferreri. Vindication of the Rights of Woman by Mary Wollstonecraft. Chapter 5, Part 3. Section 5.4. I do not mean to allude to all the writers who have written on the subject of female manners. It would, in fact, be only beating over the old ground, for they have in general written in the same strain, but attacking the boasted prerogative of man, the prerogative that may emphatically be called the iron sceptre of tyranny, the original sin of tyrants. I declare, against all power built on prejudices, however hoary, if the submission demanded be founded on justice, there is no appealing to a higher power, for God is justice itself. Let us, then, as children of the same parent, if not bastardized by being the younger born, reason together, and learn to submit to the authority of reason when her voice is distinctly heard. But if it be proved that this throne of prerogative only rests on a chaotic mass of prejudices, that have no inherent principle of order to keep them together, or on an elephant, tortoise, or even the mighty shoulders of a son of the earth, they may escape, who dare to brave the consequence without any breach of duty, without sinning against the order of things. Whilst reason raises man above the brutal herd, and death is big with promises, they alone are subject to blind authority who have no reliance on their own strength. They are free who will be free. Quote, he is the free man whom truth makes free. End quote from Cooper. The being who can govern itself has nothing to fear in life. But if anything is dearer than its own respect, the price must be paid to the last farthing. Virtue, like everything valuable, must be loved for herself alone, or she will not take up her abode with us. She will not impart that peace which passeth understanding, when she is merely made the stilts of reputation, and respected with pharisaical exactness, because honesty is the best policy. That the plan of life which enables us to carry some knowledge and virtue into another world is the one best calculated to ensure content in this cannot be denied. Yet few people act according to this principle, though it be universally allowed that it admits not of dispute. Present pleasure, or present power, carry before it these sober convictions, and it is for the day, not for life, that man bargains with happiness. How few, how very few, have sufficient foresight or resolution to endure a small evil at the moment, to avoid a greater hereafter. Women in particular, whose virtue is built on mutual prejudices, I mean to use a word that comprehends more than chastity the sexual virtue, seldom attains to this greatness of mind, so that, becoming the slave of her own feelings, she is easily subjugated by those of others. Thus degraded, her reason, her misty reason, is employed rather to burnish than to snap her chains. Indignantly have I heard women argue in the same track as men, and adopt the sentiments that brutalize them with all the pertinacity of ignorance. I must illustrate my assertion by a few examples. Mrs. Piozzi, who often repeated by rote what she did not understand, comes forward with Johnsonian periods. Quote, Seek not for happiness in singularity, and dread a refinement of wisdom as a deviation into folly. End quote. 
Thus she dogmatically addresses a new-married man, and to elucidate this pompous exordium she adds, quote, I said that the person of your lady would not grow more pleasing to you, but pray let her never suspect that it grows less so, that a woman will pardon an affront to her understanding much sooner than one to her person is well known, nor will any of us contradict the assertion. All our attainments, all our arts, are employed to gain and keep the heart of man. And what mortification can exceed the disappointment if the end be not obtained? There is no reproof, however pointed, no punishment, however severe, that a woman of spirit will not prefer to neglect. And if she can endure it without complaint, it only proves that she means to make herself amends by the attention of others for the slights of her husband. These are true masculine sentiments. Quote, All our arts are employed to gain and keep the heart of man. And what is the inference? If her person, and was there ever a person, though formed with Medician symmetry that was not slighted, be neglected, she will make herself amends by endeavouring to please other men. Noble morality! But thus is the understanding of the whole sex affronted, and their virtue deprived of the common basis of virtue. A woman must know that her person cannot be as pleasing to her husband as it was to her lover, and if she be offended with him for being a human creature, she may as well whine about the loss of his heart as about any other foolish thing. And this very want of discernment, or unreasonable anger, proves that he could not change his fondness for her person into affection for her virtues, or respect for her understanding. Whilst women avow, and act up to such opinions, their understandings at least deserve the contempt and obloquy that men, who never insult their persons, have pointedly levelled at the female mind. And it is the sentiments of these polite men, who do not wish to be encumbered with mind, that vain women thoughtlessly adopt. Yet they should know that insulted reason alone can spread that sacred reserve about the persons which renders human affections, for human affections have always some base alloy, as permanent as it is consistent with the grand end of existence, the attainment of virtue. The Baroness du Steele speaks the same language as the lady just cited, with more enthusiasm. Her eulogium on Rousseau was accidentally put into my hands, and her sentiments, the sentiments of too many of my sex, may serve as the text for a few comments. Quote, Though Rousseau, she observes, has endeavoured to prevent women from interfering in public affairs, and acting a brilliant part in the theatre of politics, yet in speaking of them, how much has he done it to their satisfaction? If he wished to deprive them of some rights foreign to their sex, how has he forever restored to them all those to which it has a claim? And in attempting to diminish their influence over the deliberations of men, how sacredly has he established the empire they have over their happiness! In aiding them to descend from a usurped throne, he has firmly seated them upon that to which they were destined by nature. And though he be full of indignation against them when they endeavour to resemble men, yet when they come before him with all the charms, weaknesses, virtues, and errors of their sex, his respect for their persons amounts almost to adoration. End quote true, for never was there a sensualist who paid more fervent adoration at the shrine of beauty. So in doubt, indeed, was his respect for the person, 
that excepting the virtue of chastity, for obvious reasons, he only wished to see it embellished by charms, weaknesses, and errors. He was afraid lest the austerity of reason should disturb the soft playfulness of love. The master wished to have a meretricious slave to fondle, entirely dependent on his reason and bounty. He did not want a companion, whom he should be compelled to esteem, or a friend, to whom he could confide the care of his children's education, should death deprive them of their father, before he had fulfilled the sacred task. He denies woman reason, shuts her out from knowledge, and turns her aside from truth. Yet his pardon is granted, because, quote, he admits the passion of love. It would require some ingenuity to show why women were to be under such an obligation to him for thus admitting love, when it is clear that he admits it only for the relaxation of men, and to perpetuate the species. But he talked with passion, and that powerful spell worked on the sensibility of a young encomiast. Quote, what signifies it, pursues this rhapsodist, to women, that his reason disputes with them the empire, when his heart is devotedly theirs? It is not empire, but equality that they should contend for. Yet if they wished only to lengthen out their sway, they should not entirely trust to their persons. For though beauty may gain a heart, it cannot keep it, even while the beauty is in full bloom unless the mind lend, at least, some graces. When women are once sufficiently enlightened to discover their real interest on a grand scale, they will, I am persuaded, be very ready to resign all the prerogatives of love that are not mutual, speaking of them as lasting prerogatives, for the calm satisfaction of friendship, and the tender confidence of habitual esteem. Before marriage they will not assume any insolent airs, nor afterward abjectly submit. But endeavouring to act like reasonable creatures, in both situations, they will not be tumbled from a throne to a stool. Madame Gently has written several entertaining books for children, and her letters on education afford many useful hints, that sensible parents will certainly avail themselves of, but her views are narrow, and her prejudices as unreasonable as strong. I shall pass over her vehement argument in favour of the eternity of future punishments, because I blush to think that a human being should ever argue vehemently in such a cause, and only make a few remarks on her absurd manner of making the parental authority supplant reason. For everywhere does she inculcate not only blind submission to parents, but to the opinion of the world. A person is not to act in this or that way, though convinced they are right in doing so, because some equivocal circumstances may lead the world to suspect that they acted from different motives. This is sacrificing the substance for a shadow. Let people but watch their own hearts, and act as rightly as far as they can judge, and they may patiently wait till the opinion of the world comes round. It is best to be directed by a simple motive, for justice has too often been sacrificed to propriety, another word for convenience. She tells the story of a young man, engaged by his father's express desire, to a girl of fortune. Before the marriage could take place, she is deprived of her fortune, and thrown friendless on the world. The father practices the most infamous arts to separate his son from her, and when the son detects his villainy, and, following the dictates of honour, marries the girl, 
nothing but misery ensues, because, forsooth, he married without his father's consent. On what ground can religion or morality rest when justice is thus set at defiance? In the same style she represents an accomplished young woman, as ready to marry anybody that her mamma pleased to recommend, and as actually marrying the young man of her own choice, without feeling any emotions of passion, because that a well-educated girl had not time to be in love. Is it possible to have much respect for a system of education that thus insults reason and nature? Many similar opinions occur in her writings, mixed with sentiments that do honour to her head and heart. Yet so much superstition is mixed with her religion, and so much worldly wisdom with her morality, that I should not let a young person read her works, unless I could afterwards converse on the subjects, and point out the contradictions. Mrs. Chapone's letters are written with such good sense, and unaffected humility, and contain so many useful observations, that I only mention them to pay the worthy writer this tribute of respect. I cannot, it is true, always coincide in opinion with her, but I always respect her. The very word respect brings Mrs. Macaulay to my remembrance, the woman of the greatest abilities, undoubtedly, that this country has ever produced, and yet this woman has been suffered to die without sufficient respect being paid to her memory. Posterity, however, will be more just, and remember that Catherine Macaulay was an example of intellectual acquirements supposed to be incompatible with the weakness of her sex. In her style of writing, indeed, no sex appears, for it is like the sense it conveys, strong and clear. I will not call hers a masculine understanding, because I admit not of such an arrogant assumption of reason, but I contend that it was a sound one, and that her judgment, the matured fruit of profound thinking, was a proof that a woman can acquire judgment, in the full extent of the word, possessing more penetration than sagacity, more understanding than fancy, she writes with sober energy and argumentative closeness, yet sympathy and benevolence give an interest to her sentiments, and that vital heat to arguments which forces the reader to weigh them. Coinciding in opinion with Mrs. Macaulay relative to many branches of education, I refer to her valuable work, instead of quoting her sentiments to support my own. When I first thought of writing these strictures, I anticipated Mrs. Macaulay's approbation with a little of that sanguine ardour which it has been the business of my life to depress, but soon heard, with the sickly calm of disappointed hope, and the still seriousness of regret, that she was no more. End of chapter 5, part 3